And now, coming to you live from the Waldorf Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Gary K. Wolf and Jonathan Strand with special guests Chris Brown, Eileen Gunn, and William Gibson on episode 220 of the Coot Street Podcast! And I have to wait until that last sort of fading note goes away, but I'd like to thank you all for being here, and uh, this is this is one of the larger podcasts we've had, so uh, we should probably... Briefly reintroduce everybody. Uh, Chris has got a couple of stories. I just noticed today, Chris, you have a story in the Chip Delaney Tribute Anthology, which is coming out. I do. Stories for Chip. I'm excited to be in that. It's a pretty remarkably diverse array of authors they put together on the table of contents. Pretty excited about that. It's very impressive. And you were in 12 Tomorrows, the MIT Anthology, just, was it last year? I was, along with uh, Bill, and I think Eileen is also in the uh, stories for Chip, so we've got a, some good overlaps there. Eileen, I, I, I think I know your story in the stories for Chip, do I? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a story I wrote a few years back for, for Chip Delaney and Michael Swanwick. Yeah, actually. Set in a service area on the New Jersey Turnpike, right? That's right. <laughs> I'm very fond of the service areas on the Jersey Turnpike. You know, they're named for people like John Bon Jovi and and Joyce Kilmer and stuff. I've always been just yeah. a little infatuated with those areas. And Bill, of course, is just uh, not too long ago you've returned from uh, what struck me as an extraordinarily extensive and ongoing tour for the peripheral. Well. <clears throat> I don't know uh, how extraordinary it was by contemporary standards. I, I often hear stories of, uh, you know, writers, writers being forced to take it on much further. But, it, you know, it, I, it was enough that I'm only just feeling fully recovered from it. I could imagine. Well, we'll we'll try not to recapitulate all the things you've had to say about the peripheral. But I, I did want to say something uh, which has really nothing to do with, with with being a critic or reviewer. It's a very personal reaction to it. I I sort of fell in love with Flynn, and yeah. and and part of the reason for that is I kept okay. This is going to sound really shallow, but I have to say it. I kept picturing her as Jennifer Lawrence, but as the pre-Jennifer Lawrence Jennifer Lawrence, because I kept picturing her surroundings as that film Winter's Bone. Uh, yeah, so that, that, was, that was a very conscious influence. Okay, that's very, yeah. that's very good to hear. Yeah, because, Winter, Winter's Bone, as was the television series justified, but the reason they both were is they, they both, both those work resonated very powerfully for me because I grew up in a small town in Southwest Virginia. It's okay. Long, long after I left it, uh, collapsed in, in a series of national recessions and as far as I know the the real main source of income in in my home county is, is wholesaling illicit drugs 
Well, that was the other thing that struck me about it because um, my family is from southern Missouri, uh, which is the same, actually exactly the same part of southern Missouri that the guy who wrote the novel Winter's Bone is from. And when I was looking at, well, I was looking at the film, this actually goes back long, obviously, before I, I read the peripheral. And I thought the film Winter's Bone was like a science fiction film based on a based on my childhood, but I didn't know that future was going to happen from the childhood that I had. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, completely. Some, yeah, they're yeah, more... They're no, more that's, I, get, I get it, yeah. Okay, good. Um, and then the, the other personal reaction is, every time I read something said in near future London, I immediately see everything from the point of view of John and Judith Clute's flat, which I know you've stayed at as well as I, and, and it, it, it also seems to be something where you have this 1840s manufacturing building with this enormously addictive book collection in it and Judith's art, and surrounded by all these things that, are, that haven't happened yet. Um, how, how do you mean things that haven't happened yet? Uh, I, I'm thinking specifically about the, the, the sort of stuff that goes on in Camden Town, that, you, that, that whatever's going on at the electric ballroom is, if, if you know what's going on at the electric ballroom, you aren't paying attention because whatever's going on there is something cooler than what you know about. Oh, okay, yeah. Well... I've never. It's been it's been a long time since I've experienced London as the avant-garde in that sense. In fact, I'm not even sure they can they can even be an avant-garde in that sense anymore. I think yeah. there's there's an industry of marketing, whatever. As the as the next avant-garde, my my sense of of undistributed future being distributed increasingly rapidly in in London ha has to do with London as defined in some senses, and, and some of them are quite sleazy as the financial capital of the early 21st century, and also uh, as, I don't know if the, the peripheral implies this, but it's very much in the flavor of the peripheral. London is where you move if you've ripped off all the money in your third world country. <laughs> it, yeah. is. It, absolutely, it is. It absolutely is. I, I know some in, amazing stories, some of which I can't tell about people who live who live in London now and have lived in, in London and committed the most unspeakable crimes against humanity. And when they got to London, there was this whole industry of people waiting for them to fit them right into the, the fabric of the cleft, basically. Although... It's not. It's not the clept that runs London. It's sort of the clept from the sticks yeah. who need a comfy place where they can walk around in the street and send their kids to good schools. 
Yeah. Kind of a uh, capitalist avant-garde there, right? The people people expressing their avant-garde through increasingly sophisticated uh, narratives of derivatives and things like that. Yeah, well, the, the, the sense of the avant-garde that I think I grew, I grew, people my age grew up with an idea of the, the avant-garde was that somewhere there was a, a there were backwaters of incredible, incredible coolness in, in which the next thing was being bred and we could expect it to emerge, but we had to be very cool ourselves in order to find to find the backwater. But we live in a world without any backwaters. They're like there are no more backwaters, and big cities are no longer the the incredibly efficient concentrators of novelty that they have previously been. Uh, that's all happening in a distributed post-geographical world. So that making making possible uh, something like Diantfurt, that didn't come from London. <laughs> and that's not the next big thing, and it's, it's not even the avant-garde, but it's a, it's a thing... It, it, it occurs to me that if I were to talk to my students at the university about the term avant-garde, they would think that's a pretty old-fashioned term by itself. It is, but so is, so is Bohemia. But, but I think that they're both, they're both eminently applicable, applicable still. I mean, if something's... If something's too old-fashioned to be applicable because it's a hundred years old, it's that to me kind of supposes that that we have no cultural memory. <laughs> that is, you know, that we have no sense, no sense of it, no long view. <laughs> which which and, brings and, me back to my students again. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's probably a good thing we have no cultural memory because we would be so aware of repeating what was done in the previous generation and the one before that and the one before that that we wouldn't be able to act at all. No, but we do that. We, we do that in other... We, you know, we do that with everything else. Like we're not, we're not rem that remarkably different from our, you know, distant, distant ancestors in in terms of what we, what we actually do in the, the course of our lives. But without, uh, the, without the long view, we're unable to recognize actual novelty and actual turning points. And and I think there are actual novelties and turning points in in human history where people are suddenly experiencing something that is genu genuinely new. Do you yeah, see there are any now? Go ahead. What? Do, do you, Bill, do you think there are... Do you see these turning points now 
Or are they points that you see in the past? I don't, I don't trust my, I mean, occasionally, on, at, at times when I, I think I might be seeing a, a new one, I, I'm still not ready, you know, I'm still not ready to kind of put it, <laughs> to put it up, to put it up on the, the shelves with the new one, because I, I don't think we have much much capacity for registering those things because we're we're creatures we're creatures of a, a very very brief indiv we're individuals of an extraordinarily brief duration in terms mm -hmm. of the rest of the, the time that's happening and. Because of that, the only hope we have of of perceiving, like where big big you know big significant changes in what human beings do, is is with history, and history is a, a totally speculative discipline. The history of humanity in a hundred years won't look anything like our idea of the history of humanity, like all the way back. They, for one thing, there's so much technology online for uh, and coming online for archaeology that all kinds of all kinds of different parts of our history are going to change hugely. So it 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 is literally a, a, specu a speculative discipline, but it's the only way I know of that we could the only way I can imagine that we could really get a get a handle on on when it's changed. And our idea of that will always keep keep changing too. But it, for for me science fiction and, and history are completely conjoined they're like conjoined twins. <laughs> With you know sharing sharing the same circulatory system, I'm I'm glad to hear you say that because I was uh, thinking as you were speaking that one of the ways you can you can see history taking an unexpected turn is to look at past science fiction and see what it didn't get right or what it missed. I mean, it basically missed most of the computer revolution. It basically missed the internet, but then you'll it still missed, read novels. It missed. Yeah, go ahead. Right. Well, I, I think it missed most of everything. <laughs> it's <laughs> kind of my my reading of my lifetime as a consumer of science fiction that I can scarcely, you know, the the, the works of science fiction that stand out for me as having having actually gotten it right is a tiny, tiny residue of all the science fiction that's ever ever been written. And I don't mean getting it right in any narrowly uh, narrowly correct technological sense, but just getting it right in terms of how it feels. Yeah, I was, I was thinking uh, just uh, for a series of lectures I'm working on, I, I was rereading parts of The Man in the High Castle uh, just last night, yeah. as a matter of fact. And I was thinking, okay, there... Uh, forgetting the alternate history and the Nazis winning and that sort of thing, there are 
locutions in it. There, there are patterns of speech in it. There's a scene in it where she lights up a, a brand name marijuana cigarette. It's a throwaway line for, for Dick, but you can see that he was thinking through cultural change even when he was writing an altered history novel. Uh, and the novel seems really contemporary even now. Yeah, and I think that's, it does. And that's my favorite of, of Dick's work by, by far. And I think it was probably the first one I ever, the first one I ever read. But it does have a really interestingly contemporary, contemporary feel. Uh, although I, I think something like Stand on Zanzibar is actually, is actually closer to what we've got. Probably, you're true. Yeah, that's right. It's like, or, or it's matter, what we've got, it, what we've got go is ahead. like Stand on Zanzibar with, with the, the, uh, the flavor of Man in the High Castle. <laughs> okay, that's a good way of putting it. Or, or maybe a little bit of the flavor of The Star is My Destination, even. Um, which just in its blatant cynicism, struck me as being decades ahead of other science fiction in the 50s. Yeah. Well, that was my kind of, I don't know, that was, that was really important. That was a really important thing for me, finding that book. I didn't even find it as a book. I found it as a couple of, yellowing issues of Galaxy yeah, magazine was, in, a in, a in a junk store and, and sort of read them out of order and I didn't have the complete, <laughs> <laughs> the complete story. But I, I can remember like looking at that and just being like baffled. Uh, but it was just a, a profound experience. And he seemed to have Bester had like nothing to do with nothing to do with the, the culture of science fiction uh, around him, other than that kind of basic ability to uh, appropriate and repurpose memes. He was just uh -huh. doing doing whatever it was that he somehow somehow needed to do, which when I get that feeling about any writer, I'm, I'm just like totally excited. <laughs> <laughs> he was an advertising guy or something. I mean, his, he lived in a much more sophisticated world from what I could tell uh, than, than, than the world of Asimov and the, and the people who were really oh, in the center. yeah. He was, he, was a, he was like a raging... 50s Manhattan hipster in the old yeah. sense. He was, a, he was a Madison Avenue advertising executive with with tailored tailored suits. Like he's even even in you know in in, in a sense I guess in, in his dotage if you could call him call him that. The one time I I saw him he was he was like the best dressed man I I'd ever seen. <laughs> and I can't even it's hard for me to imagine him even having known his contemporaries in 
science, science fiction at that time. It would have just been very strange. But I think he was sophisticated in the sense that he would have been okay with them. Like, well, know. I think so. I mean, uh, there were uh, an interesting piece of science fiction trivia, and Eileen, you might know this too, is the men's, the, the men's magazines that were imitating Playboy, one of them was called Rogue. It was published by Bill Hamling. And the, the, the masthead of it, Bester was, I think, the food and drink editor, and Mac Reynolds was a travel editor, and Silverberg was writing a column on this, and uh, Harlan Ellison was, maybe, I think he was editor of it for a while, Budras was editor. So there was this whole community of science fiction hipsters in New York that sort of clustered around that world that Bester had access to, and most of them didn't. Yeah, that's that's true. The, the, and and the the role of sleazy third rate wank magazines yeah. as shelters and incubators <laughs> for the well, I guess what would pass for the sort of left wing of science fiction. The people who would be more comfortable in would have been more comfortable in galaxy than in astounding. Right, but I, I uh, and I've, I've and Eileen I, I and Chris, you might have experience with this too. I've talked to Harlan about this, and and his ex, uh, what he told me was writing for Rogue and for Night and 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 Sir Magazine, which piece of science fiction trivia Sir Magazine published Gene Wolfe's first story, I believe. But they could write mainstream stories. They couldn't sell mainstream stories to Galaxy or Astounding, but they wanted to write them, and the only place they could sell them to were men's magazines that really didn't care what the fiction looked like. Yeah, Avram yeah. Davidson sold to Rogue, which is to me, there, there since he was extremely religious at the time, is kind of a baffling... But it was places where his stories were not... Uh, they could appear, and, and nobody cared. They could be as, as odd as he wanted them to be, and didn't have to have any... Uh, science fiction tropes if he didn't want them in there. Exactly. That's probably because, probably because the people who published those magazines assumed that nobody read the <laughs> right. words. Exactly. The fiction was filler between the photographs. Yeah. And otherwise, if they didn't have the fiction, they would have had to pay for more photographs. And maybe if they had more photographs, they would have gotten in trouble or something. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, you know, like, they could say, look, no, we're not for that. We're, you, know, you could actually read a story here. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you know the New York Times Magazine has a, uh, a long piece to, for Sunday's magazine about Andy Offit, written by his son, Chris. I've, and about, I've heard about that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I read it online. It's a remarkable piece, and it's about... Andy's Andy's um, discovery this of of pornography as a market that essentially eclipsed any interest he had in science fiction <laughs> and dominated his life and he could survive really really well without um, without having to write terribly well I think that, that, that huh, I did not know that but that explains what happened to Andrew W Offit's career in science fiction then doesn't it. Yeah, he, he was writing a, a porn novel a month. And I know other people were involved with that market. I mean, Fritz Leiber, I think, wrote somewhere. Phil Farmer certainly wrote things for that market. 
but it was a way of making decent money that the, the third-string science fiction magazines couldn't afford. Yes. But I guess the question, the question that lies behind this, and this goes back to something that, that Bill has succeeded at maybe more than anybody else ever, which is, and Eileen, this is for you and for Chris as well, at some point, uh, what Harlan Ellison and Robert Silverberg and Andrew Offit and all these people discovered was that they didn't have to write science fiction to make a living. Did you all discover that at some point? <laughs> I discovered that I could make a living writing advertising, and <laughs> th you know I didn't need to think about science fiction. I've never thought of science fiction as the place I went to for money. It, it doesn't pass the Willie Sutton test. They don't keep the money there. Ah, uh -huh. so I, I've never thought of it in that way. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I I practice the applied science fiction of technology a lot to support writing science fiction and. And I think of it more as writing a kind of a, a, a business fiction and a way to try to explore ways to, to kind of find that uh, uh, bit of avant-garde informed by that other sort of cutting edge. Right, so that the... It, 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 it's not really a significant source of income, then. I mean, I don't... I mean, I think that uh, I look at sort of my peers of people who are... Uh, at the stage of publishing first or second novels, and I think it's a it's a pretty challenging environment in terms of the uh, the business model. And I think that for people who embrace oh, yeah. the idea of 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 kind of pulp territory as an area where you can, uh, uh, without uh, being concerned about expectations of particular sorts of gentility, really explore uh, innovation, whether it's of a stylistic sort or of a political sort, or of a kind of a narrative experimentation sort. I think that's what's really exciting, and I see uh, things in that direction happening. And as you see more and more people kind of uh, coming into the field or coming out of MFA programs and sort of more or less oblivious to generic boundaries in a way that I think <laughs> is, is really exciting, something that... I mean, I remember reading this introduction that Bill wrote for Eileen's first collection, Stable Strategies, that talked about you know, the idea of coming into science fiction and looking for a literary bohemia, you know, a science fiction maybe that's driven by, you know, uh, amped up Madison Avenue advertising people or, or uh, you know, whatever equivalent or outsider version and finding something different and... Uh, uh, maybe having more people sort of uh, uh, coming at it from a different angle and from a different sort of mode of personal economic support is, is getting more in that direction. Who knows? Well, Bill, at some point you must have realized, uh, because the science fiction community adored you from the beginning, I mean, from before, even before Neuromancer, uh, and at some point, uh, did you ever experience something that I... Well, something I know that Jonathan Lethem experienced, which at some point people started saying to you, you're not writing science fiction anymore, you're not part of the club? Uh, you know, uh, hmm. I don't, I didn't, I didn't have uh, a sense particularly of, of being 
being adored by the science fiction <laughs> community. And my attitude when I, I started <clears throat> to publish science fiction was kind of, in some way, openly ambivalent toward particularly toward the, the concept the concept of, of genre and I knew that in some very real sense science fiction is my native literature it's sort of where where I was formed as as a reader and I think where you're formed as a reader invariably is going to determine how you how you're then maybe formed later as a as a writer so i knew i was from there but i didn't particularly want to be it uh -huh. i wanted to be from there and do something and not have to suffer suffer the same fate that's <laughs> a lot of a lot of people who who are you know from there and then they've been it and it's like from the beginning I was sort of looking at it like this is a trap and you know I I want to I want to do something but I want to get I want to get outside of it and in some way like I really was conscious of that from the beginning like how, how can and I didn't have any answers and I sort of I guess I sort of got what I wanted but a lot of it was just complete blind luck because in retrospect I can see that I didn't even you know I didn't understand it really I like I didn't I, I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know how little a lot of my favorite writers had made in their entire careers. Mm -hmm. I, I had not. I had no idea of that. And if I had known, I don't know. I would probably would have just kept on doing what I was doing, but with, with even more misgivings. Like the first couple of years of, of my so-called career, I was. I spent a lot of time sort of looking in the mirror and going, what the hell are you doing? Like, why, <laughs> why, are, you, why are you doing this? You don't even like what this genre has become. What are you doing? Uh, and it somehow, you know, it, 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 more, it, more, or less, it more or less worked out. But it, that sense, I always had that sense of... Uh, to, you know, to try to try to address your question a bit, a bit more directly. I I always had that sense of of I would talk to people. Yeah, you know, I'd meet people, and, and uh, you know, we'd meet as science fiction writers, and we'd we'd talk mm -hmm. a while, and then they they I they'd start giving me this look, like you know, what oh you know. Where are you coming from, man? And what it was was I was, you know, I would start talking about Ballard or Mervyn Peake or M. John Harrison, 
and particularly, you know, if I was talking to an American SF writer, and and that was like you were talking about a whole other genre. Like you were telling, it, it told them that you weren't what they thought the thing thought the thing was, and you know, in the beginning of of cyberpunk, so called the. The, the likely suspects would find one another by just wandering around science fiction conventions trying to talk about J.G. Ballard. Uh-huh, and yeah. anybody who didn't give you a completely blank stare was probably a potential fellow traveler. <laughs> and, and, uh, just as parentheses, I have to say that I, I, I think a lot of people would be surprised to find Mervyn Peake as, as an influence on your work. Really? Well, well, that whole so, far future London in, in the peripheral is, is, you know, my attempt at being way peaky. <laughs> like, yeah. Really? Well, mainly, yeah, I, I got peaks when I was just, just before I started to try to write science fiction. I got this beautiful collection of peakyana. That, that I think Penguin brought out. It's really, really thick trade hmm. trade paperback. And it had things in it like it had the first, like, 175 drafts of the first five pages of Titus Groan. Well, and yeah. reading, them, reading them taught me more about the patience and persistence that it requires... <laughs> To write fiction than anything I've ever read because the first one bears utterly no resemblance. You know, it, it's some completely other other thing. It's a description of Shanghai and and watching this thing mutate and all of it quite all of it quite beautifully written. Just watching it mutate over and over and over until you start gradually start seeing it. Becoming, becoming Titus grown. It's like amazing thing. Yeah, I've always, I have a huge fondness, fondness for Peak. And actually, I think of him as uh, I don't know if avant-garde is quite the term, but he he was he was certainly his, his own writer in a in a remarkable way, and a huge influence, a huge influence on the British New Wave. Right, and, um, and 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 for that matter, even his art was an influence on the British New Wave because he had such wonderful sort of caricatures of his own characters. Yeah, uh, I, I first met Peake because of a science fiction anthology from Ballantine Books called "Sometime Never." It was a novella called "Boy in Darkness," and I remember sentence by sentence that it was really like nothing I'd read before and it was after that I think that Ballantine um, went on and reprinted the the Titus Grown trilogy um, well but I got it I got it in a very very weird way my mother used to buy used to buy hard covers off tables like discount tables that would be set up in a department store in Charlotte yeah. North Carolina and she would buy, I'd go there, and, and she'd buy lots of books for like 50 cents a piece or something and bring them home. And 
they were never bestsellers. She would just like pick, pick interesting ones. So she would buy them and bring them home, and I never looked at them. And then I just, when Leiber started to write new Fafford and the Mauser stories in Fantastic in the, in the 60s, which is when I was just starting to read Fantastic and Amazing. It was really when I was just starting to read, like, adult science fiction. Mm-hmm. I, I was raving to my mother about about this Liber story that I was reading, and she said, oh, wait a minute, I've got something you might like. And she went to the bookshelf, and she brought me back a hardcover American first of Titus Crown. Hmm. So, I, you know, I was like 14 years old, and so I sat down and, <laughs> I sat down and, <clears throat> and read it, and it did, like, it fit with, it, it, in a way, it fit with library, but also completely blew my mind. And, and it, was a, it was a very good, uh, it, was a, it was a very good thing for me. So when, when Boy in Darkness appeared, like, I already knew, you know, I said, oh, okay, I know what that is. I hadn't read it, but I knew what it was a sort of pendant to. Yeah, and I came out exactly the reverse. I didn't know the trilogy until after I'd read that, but I thought, this is a very strange world, and I've never seen anything quite like it before. I've, I've, heard, I've heard his fiction described as not really fantasy, because you go through the whole Titus trilogy, and it doesn't really cross that line into the fantastic. But as, as, as the most convincing epic of the grotesque ever written, well, and I think that also illustrates how how unfantastic so much genre fantasy really is. It's like he could, you know, Mervyn Peake could could go infinitely further without introducing anything that was technically fantastic. Mm-hmm. I mean, he could. He could weird you out and induce a, a more powerful sense of cognitive dissonance with yeah. these characters who who never threaten to do magic or anything anything like that. It's just that they're they're so incredibly screwed up. <laughs> they're so weird. Yeah, but, exactly. Yeah, they're so weird that anything anything is possible, and. It's like that one of the, that sense of, when people talk about, like you listen to people who are, who are like fantasy fans sometimes talking, talking about fantasy. And as I often have, I listen to them and it's like, they have no idea how weird the world is. If they knew how weird the actual world was, They'd be screaming, and they're, so they're talking about the, this imaginary weird shit that's not even weird. And one of the things that almost kept me from becoming a science fiction writer was the the fanish use of the word mundane. Oh yeah, that used to that used to just like like kill kill me. Because it'd be 
you know, they'd be talking about some unutterably mundane piece of piece of science fiction, and and yet it was the the completely fantastic piece and mind-shattering piece of realistic fiction that was mundane. And I found that, like, so lame that it almost put me off the entire project of, of writing anything like, anything that people like that would ever, ever want to read. Yeah, we I should clarify. There, Go ahead, there are people who, as, as writers, strive to hit a kind of, um, it's almost like hitting a gong. They see other people hitting that gong, and they they think they have to write to hit, strike the same note. And they that's very common in genre fiction. You see, people people will follow a particular writer and then try to write like that writer, or try to they they think there's a key that once you've turned that key, your your work will 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 be science fiction or will be what the readers want. And I I have never felt that repeating what somebody else is doing is even worth bothering with. Um but I've noticed that and it it has always rubbed me the the wrong way, even when I went to Clarion, you know, what, forty years ago. There were people who had this model in their head of what the story was they wanted to write, and it was like all the other stories they had read. Mm -hmm. And I think that is what gives, it makes it um, difficult for people to write outside the, the genre, outside the cliches of the genre. They think they're writing to a model rather than creating something that nobody's read before, which has always been my goal. Do you think, Do you that's think that the are? workshop models reinforce that, Eileen? Well, certainly you don't get praised for being completely different. Yeah. And it, it depends on the workshop. It depends on the people you're workshopping with, of course. Yeah, and uh, I was going to say, because I've, I, mean, I know a lot of people who have taught at Clary, and I guess, uh, I know you have, Eileen, I suspect you have, Bill, too. But if somebody tries to write, like, let's just, pull somebody out who's currently got a new book out. Somebody tries, tries to write like Kelly Link. What are they trying to write like? They've got no, nothing to hold on to. They don't have a pole to grab. Um, I've, I've heard that there are a bunch of people trying to write like Kelly Link. Whether well, they that's... succeed or not is a different <laughs> thing. But they're trying to hit that sound, that golden sound that, that Kelly generates. Well, but I, it must I be enormously of... irritating. Bill? Well, I... I think of when I read, if I read a, a, a writer early, early in their their career, I, I sometimes would be like, I'll be, you know, flow, I'll be going, you know, going going with the flow of the narrative, and suddenly I'll hit, I hit a big piece of gristle. And it's it's undigested Kelly Link or whoever. It's undigested Phil Dick or, yeah. or William Gibson. And it's just like, oh God, somebody, you know, they needed an editor 
a, an editor on that one. But really, they just haven't digested their influences. And That's a good it, way of putting it. Everybody, everybody does everybody does that. Like, I can't, it's painful for me to, on those occasions where I, there's some professional need for me to go back and read my own early work. All I see is the, the gristle floating, floating out of the surface. And in some cases, I think other people would recognize who that is who's not <laughs> yeah, that wasn't really digested. And in other cases, they never would because I was very eclectic in my in my choices. But I see it. It just makes me. It just it just makes me wince. And like one of the things you get if you keep doing it long enough, I hope, is that you stop sounding like your your influences, and you quit. You quit trying to do uh-huh. it. You forget your influences, basically. Don't you have to sort of like write through them almost? Like get them out of your. Yeah, system. you can. You write them. You 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 write them. You write them out. And the other thing I I I think I've discovered recently about my own influences is that when I was first starting out, if any if anyone asked me who my influences were, I would give them a list of, of the writers I thought it was coolest to say were my influences. I don't think I quite realized that at the time, but I can now see that that was the case. And and now that I've been at it long, long enough, I started and sort of going back and going over what my history as a reader was, I mm-hmm. started to realize that that probably some of my most powerful influences were were writers I've never acknowledged and whose work I only have now is like a dim memory. Like I'm I'm pretty sure now that uh, Lynn Dayton's first five or six spy novels were a huge influence on me when when I started to write. Like I, I had learned all sorts of really interesting techniques, or at least I had seen Dayton use all sorts of really, really interesting techniques that when I started to write science fiction would have been imminently applicable. And <clears throat> Dayton himself was, in those days, a master at describing technology. And he loved technology. He wrote wrote Bomber. And there's a a collection of Dayton's short fiction, and he didn't write very much, and it was probably all, all all written for men's magazines. And one of the stories is an absolutely brilliant piece of of science, of pure science fiction. And I, I have no idea even what it was about, but I, I remember reading it when I, when I was in my in my late teens and thinking, "Wow, Dayton could you know could have been an ASSF writer." Like well, he really actually wrote that S. 
he wrote SSGB, which was an alternate history. Yeah, exactly. Uh, right. <clears throat> he did. He he did. He did indeed. And so, you know, <clears throat> I think we don't know who really. I don't think I don't think we we really know who really influenced us. I think maybe we can figure it out later when we think about what we've read and look at what we what mm -hmm. we've written. But the the names that that I was hauling out when I was first first publishing, I think I was just I want were were icons I wanted to be associated with mm -hmm. more but, more than influences probably. Eileen, has that been your experience too? Well, when I think about who actually influenced, especially my earlier stories, because I, I try to, I can recognize in the, in my prose, I recognize Robert Benchley. I recognize James M. I Barry. I knew you were going to say Robert Benchley. I'm so happy. Yeah. <laughs> the, I, these are people that I read when I was a kid. I mean, practically one of the first books I ever read was, was a version of Peter Pan retold for little people or something. And, <laughs> It still amuses me. It's still a cleverly written book. I'm cleverer, I think, than the actual novelization of the play that Barry himself did. Um, and those, what what caught my imagination is the surprises and the turns of phrase. And I find those still in my own uh, my own prose. Though I do try to stomp out too much of the Barry because he can be. It can be sort of self-satisfiedly sentimental in a clever yeah. way that, that when I start doing that, I get very annoyed at myself. Well, some influences are more imitable than others, right? I mean, you think how many Chandlerian voices have to be sort of drummed out of early work that you see roaming around or, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, things like the, the, when you'll see a little Hutter S. Thompson coming through, versus I think people like uh, Ballard are uh, a little, a little, a little less prone to uh, to that kind of caroming through other people's work. If early influences are something that any writer's got to write through and and becomes more and more aware of through their careers and tries to control, is there later in your career also a challenge to not end up? caricaturing yourself a little bit to writing into particular aspects of your own strength that then become yeah like a caricature of yourself almost there may be um i what i find more problematic is that the as i continue to write i change so I'm not the guy who wrote, I'm not the guy who wrote Neuromancer, and I'm not even the guy who wrote Zero, Zero History. But, so when I publish a new book, there's, there's always a certain amount of feedback that's like, like, why can't he do it like he did it in his first novel? Mm -hmm. uh, or, you know, why can't he, why can't he do it like he did it in his last novel? <laughs> why does he have to do this? Why does he have to do this other, this other thing? And 
and that the you know and then you you sort of you pick up the you pick up the other review and it's so it's somebody saying why is he always the same <laughs> changing yeah. over and over he's doing the same thing so i don't know it's like the guy in the back of the room at a nightclub saying, I want to hear Temptation with a drum solo, uh, because, you know, that's what you like. But um, the, other, the other side of the coin is that the, the old man in the sea is not the best of Hemingway. Uh, the old man in the sea is Hemingway knowing he's Hemingway and writing Hemingway sentences and making sure they look like Hemingway sentences. Um, and I, I think that is a potential trap for writers who've been, who've been very successful and who've um, or in the case of Hemingway, thinking, if I write this, I'll get a Nobel, which he did, uh, so you can't argue with it. But nevertheless, is, is, is that something you, uh, any of you worry about? No. Well, it's, it's, I think it's something that I sort of try not to do, but it's one of, it's one of those things that you don't have to think about trying not not to do. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's a really embarrassing thing that you, you don't actually have to consciously think about trying not to do. You just always try not to do it. And if, uh, I'm not positive, but it may be that in, in the, the vast mountain of prose that I write that, that I I reject that never even gets printed out, mm -hmm. and there's no there's no record of anyway. Uh, a lot of it might well read like like somebody you know writing really bad neuromancer. <laughs> I mean, well, I think as a reader, you see lots of you you see that kind of. Uh, occasional slippage into self-parody and the works of people that you really admire as they get further along in their career. But it's almost always sort of counterweighted by a kind of an increased wisdom or a, a kind of a, a much deeper amount of truth coming through that I think uh, has a much more important effect. I, th I think that's true. I think that makes sense that there's a absorbing the influences and sort of transforming them and making them part of your voice is different from aping them. But we have seen in the science fiction field in the late 60s and early 70s, we saw a lot of really bad Harlan Ellison stories. And frankly, in the mid to late 80s, we saw a lot of bad William Gibson stories written by people who are thinking, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do. Yeah, maybe. I oh, mean, so nothing. Nothing's more painful. <laughs> I, well, I shouldn't put it that way, but there's, there's some like more, more cringe. Few things are as cringe-inducing as in reading something by someone who thinks they're trying to do what you do. It, mm -hmm. It's really, really. A, it's really a, a sad and peculiar experience. It's kind of like looking at yourself in a funhouse mirror, maybe, where you see. 
I mean, this is my experience of reading people trying to imitate what Gibson tries to do. Not that anybody tries to imitate what I do. I, I haven't seen any of that. But people are trying to imitate Gibson exaggerate the wrong stuff. You know, it's like they do the wrong stuff and they leave out the great stuff. And I can see why it would drive the author crazy. But, but how much of that is a problem with the basic uh, project of science fiction where you have a lot of people who, who are writing science fiction who just aren't simply engaged enough with and aware enough of the weirdness of the world to attempt to write science fiction that's contemporary? No, no, I that's, think that's spot on. Yeah. Chris? I think that's a, a real problem. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that... Uh, there's probably a, there's a uh, an insularity at times in the community, and uh, there, there aren't that many people who are out there uh, pulling in kind of really active engagement in other parts of the world that I think can really inform, to your point, a, a kind of a deeper articulation of the kind of imminent world that's aborning around us. And there are examples, like I think Nathan Ballingrude. Uh, kind of operating more in kind of a horror and fantasy nexus who brings in a kind of a deep kind of uh, a kind of a contemporary street culture into his voice. And I think there's people doing things that come at it from more of a kind of a modern, uh, you know, technologist point of view. But it would be great to see more of that. No, I think that's true. I think there are a lot of people who, well, and, and, and they're young writers, so you can't really blame young writers for being young writers. But there's a sense of at some point in your career, you learn to write from the world you know rather than to write from the fiction that you love. Yeah, uh, but, can, but can you write science fiction? I'm curious what everybody thinks. Can you write science fiction that is of interest to the modern world if what you're focusing on reading and thinking about was published in Astounding in 1950 rather than happening in the world around you in 2015? Well, that's a question. Can old people write? You know, because <laughs> no, but, 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 no, our, our formative years were spent reading stuff that was published in 1950. And as we develop our style and stuff, by the time you get to being my age or Bill's age, you've you've kind of yeah, your 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 writing embodies everything you've read for the last 60 years or so. And young people have, you know, they have a different set of influences and their writing is going to be, to some extent, different. I can't, I don't think I can write this, I don't write like a younger person, I don't think. But I don't like, I try not to write like an old person. Well, I just imagine the young person, a really, really brilliant young person, reading a great lack of core 1940s American SF and then writing uh, a contemporary SF novel in that modality, like describing the, like, actually I'm quite excited about this, although I don't, I don't think I, I have what it takes to do it. But imagine if someone could write a novel 
set in our world today, like exactly our world today, but written as though it was a 1947 Robert Heinlein novel, like <laughs> exactly like a exactly like a Heinlein novel. Like it would be incredible. I mean, it would just that could be so cool if someone could exist who could actually do that. <laughs> That's that's a challenge for all kinds of people. I was thinking as you were talking, well, maybe somebody should write a few more of Clifford Simak's city stories because, after all, we're dealing with communication. That's that's a great idea, actually. Well, I think I think actually John Varley did a 1970s version of Heinlein when he was writing in the 70s. He was um, his his especially his short story collections were very Heinlein-esque. And his uh -huh. first novel, but set in a time that that even today, with gender transitioning um, being easy and and welcome, and uh, all kinds of uh, um, body modification being easy and not that unusual, that's the world we live in now. And John was writing about it in a very Heinlein-esque way in 1977 or so. Mm -hmm. I think yeah, I wouldn't mind seeing a few brand new writers writing brand new new wave stories. Well, that's what I was going to say. I've talked to a number of younger, well, write, some younger writers and some younger readers and critics who when they go back and they discover a J.G. Ballard story or they discover a Lafferty story or they discover a Joanna Russ story, the stories seem brand new to them, and they, their their reaction is, "I wish people would write stories like that now." And and yet, the stories they're talking about were written in the sixties and seventies. Sometimes, if you go back and yeah, read I mean, I just... Catherine McLean, Catherine McLean's a good example. Excellent. In the, in the late forties and the early fifties, she's doing stories that that are still clever and still funny, and her future, her ideas incorporated in there have come to pass. That is, there are people with, essentially with iPods. Um, wow. but, but they are still, the stories are still bright and resonant and the material in the stories, the relationships between the characters and everything are completely contemporary with today. But they're, They're not futuristic stories. Uh -huh. As they must have been in 1947. They, that, that, that burnish is gone. It could be. I mean, it I embarrass, embarrassingly just discovered uh, the female man, thinking of Joanna Russ, found it at a okay. neighborhood Goodwill about a year ago and picked it up. And, and uh, you know, it was the, certainly the most innovative thing I'd read in a year, and it was, you know, 50 years old. It's still new. It's still brand new. Absolutely. Yeah. Unbelievably so. But then there are young writers who are writing in, in new places and writing well. I mean, when you look at people like Lauren Bucus and Cameron Hurley and Anne Leckie and others, they are actually writing into interesting places. It's not there's nobody doing it. I, I guess it's just science fiction appears to have a tendency to drift towards nostalgia and nostalgia about itself rather than regularly engaging with the world we're in. Yeah, well, I think we were talking about earlier about a bill. Oh. oh, I think that's the problem. That's the the problem with the whole construct of genre, that it it predisposes toward 
a nostalgia for former for former self. It's like you're so spontaneous. Don't ever change. It it, it can't. It can't. It, it, it's. It's just, it's such an incredible block to to going anywhere, and it basically I think it it basically exists as as a kind of, of economic economic tool. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a way of it's a way of making. A living. A novels are called that because they were supposed to be novel, mm. and and one one off, really inter, really interesting experiences. But it's and I guess it's quite human that when people read one that they really like, they go to the bookseller and say, "I'd really like to read another one of one of those." You know what? What else has Mister Dickens done? Uh huh. I, I think you're so, right, and I think that, I mean, in the mystery genre, I could see, I, I know people, I've got some friends who write for Harlequin Romances, and they're perfectly happy, but, uh, and they make a decent living, they don't really seriously think of themselves as writers, because they know they're writing to a formula, and British mystery writers who measure everything they do against Agatha Christie, or American writers who measure everything they do against Raymond Chandler or Ross MacDonald, are trapped in exactly that sort of uh, circuit that you're talking about. Yep. Or science fiction writers who think they have to figure out how to outdo Heinlein. <laughs> but I think all of these people think they're writers. I don't know well, why people who write uh, romances wouldn't think they were writers. No. Mm. I think that's true. Two, uh, let me explain that. There seem to be two ways of thinking about being a writer. There are people I know who go to a um, group called Novelists.inc or something like that. These are people who write four to seven novels a month. And their job is to produce and get a limited amount of income from everything. And they're writing, they're writers in the same sense that, um, that pulpsters back in the 30s and 40s, Max Brand would write in four or five different genres. Writing is something you do to make a living. And there are people, there are writers who think that every work you write has to be new and original and different. I think that's two different ways of looking at the profession. It might be that the writers that are, are sort of cranking out work are embarrassed when they're talking to you and need to say, well, I'm not really a writer. But I think they, you know, the ones that I've met do think of themselves as writers, and they think of themselves as much more effective writers than me because I don't write well, very much stuff. Probably should. I, I, th I, think, I think if you... Just dig beneath their idea of writer. They're really talking about themselves as craftspeople. They know how to do this, and they do it over and over again. Mm -hmm. And that's one definition of writer. It's, it's a perfectly legitimate definition of writer. But it's not what you do, Eileen, or Bill, or Chris, I don't think. Because none of you are that prolific. And Eileen, you especially. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I know. <laughs> I mean, people, 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 it's like, people seem, they say things like, well, wow, this is a really good story, but you're not very prolific. Like, those things have something to do with one another. They don't. Of course not. And Ted Chang is the class, Ted Chang may be a better example than you are. I don't know. Which one of you holds the record for slowest pace, you or Ted? 
It's not a, t a contest. We both work at our home pace. We don't look, we don't compare notes. It's Howard Waldrop is the slowest, I think. Howard Waldrop and They're, they're busy living, living interesting lives in order to put it into the work. True. Mm. <laughs> Though I am taken by the image of you and Ted sitting around in the bar going, that's unseemly quickly to publish another story. I'm waiting at least another year. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't know why you're writing so fast, Ted. I say it's, that to It's more a question of which one is a greater perfectionist. Which one is what? It's more a question of which one of you is the greater perfectionist, because I think that's a lot of what that's about, is people really putting a lot of thought and time into each piece. Certainly, when you see uh, how Ted approaches his work, it seems to be the case. <laughs> I think I think Ted and I have two different, very different strategies because Ted does think enormously about his work, and I spend all my time trying not to think about the work because, and I think it probably goes back to the '60s to this sort of spontaneity and how if you if you overthink it, it will be all clotted and and stiff. So. I could think about my work a lot more than I do, but I spend a lot of time trying not to think about it. I guess that makes yeah. sense. <laughs> no, no, I'm doing it wrong. You, you feel free to tell me I'm doing it wrong. No, no. Eileen, it depends on what comes out at the end. That's what I thought. But people <laughs> never say that. They never say, this is a great story. Congratulations for writing so slowly. <laughs> no, that's true. They say, this is a great story. Let's see some more about it, like, just like it tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. On the other hand, it's better than the Howard Waldrop approach, and you don't, haven't had novels sitting around for 30 or more years unpublished. Well, his technique is different from both me and Ted, because he will keep it all in his head for decades, and then he will sit down and just, hand by hand, write the page after page after page after page, and then it's done. So it's another... You know, he's doing it wrong, but he turns out some fantastic stories. Absolutely. He does indeed. He does indeed. And, and, Bill, you're not exactly the most prolific novelist. I know when people reach the level of success you've had, they get offered, they get people saying to them, publishers saying to them, let's do one a year. Uh, let's, let's get a schedule for this going. I, I remember talking, uh, I used oh, to know the. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, I, well, I, I, I was friends with a mystery writer, Robert Parker, uh, who started out very enthusiastically writing a Spencer mystery year and then a Spencer mystery a year, and then got to the point where it was simply, I don't know, it was like going for a workout every year he had to do this thing. He got to the point where he could write them in a weekend, but all he wanted to do were write other novels at that point. Uh, and you've never allowed yourself to get into that trap. Well, I would, uh, I think if, if I were giving, if I were giving advice to a new, a new novelist, you know, a, a kind of entry, entry level novelist, and this is not, a, that's actually not even a realistic thing to say, because I don't know anything, like, I know almost nothing about the challenges facing entry-level novelists mm -hmm. today. You know, I, I hear about it, that 
it scares me. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's all I know. But, you know, if I was like, say, well, this is the worst of, that worked for me when I started, one piece of advice would be, be whatever you do, Never let them find out how quickly you really might be able to do it. <laughs> really? Never. <laughs> never let them. Never let them find out because then they'll make you do it. And I think uh, you know a lot of uh, a lot of what keeps a, a lot of genre SF from being the sort of thing that would satisfy a weirdo like myself <laughs> is the fact that people have to... The, the economics of the genre forces people to write too much or to write too quickly. And the only reason, from in most cases... Uh, someone like Stephen King would have been an exception because he sort of pathologically couldn't not do it. Exactly. But for most people, for mo mo most people don't have that much actual stuff. Uh, don't have that much of the good stuff in them. Yeah. Uh, and so where it would, you know, maybe, like, it's funny, like, it's funny you say that I'm, I'm not, not that, not that prolific, because I know that I'm not in, in genre terms, but mm -hmm. in, uh, in terms of the literary novel, I'm regular as clockwork. And Absolutely. very prolific. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, uh, and that's a big that's a big difference. And the reason some science fiction writers have to write so much science fiction is because they they don't get paid enough money not to write a lot of science fiction. Well, that's true. Which is, I mean, which is a, you know a, a really good reason to avoid being labeled a science fiction writer, uh, even even today, because you're going to wind up. You're you're going to wind up slotted in terms in terms of income, and you'll have to overproduce. And when you overproduce, yeah. you as drug dealers say, you step on the product. <laughs> uh, it, it it becomes adulterated with with whatever. And you know, I'm. I, I sell, I've known that forever, but I seldom say it <laughs> because it's, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but I think that accounts for a, a lot of why, why, why SF and fantasy and genres aren't taken entirely seriously because anybody from outside looks at it and says the product's been stepped on. Well, our good friend and, and sometimes podcast guest, Peter Straub, has had a very similar experience of people saying to him, why don't you write another floating dragon or another talisman every year? And, and instead, it's, he's, he's like you. It's like four or five years between novels because he wants to write the novel he's writing, not the ones that the readers want him to write necessarily. Um, but I do have to parenthetically 
when you talked about that secret of not telling them how fast you can produce, the best, best writing advice I got, and this is not about fiction, this is about nonfiction, it's about corporate writing, academic writing, and I was a dean at the time I got it, was from Algis Budras, who had spent several years in the advertising industry. And he said, if you're writing for business, what you want to do is to get an assignment, write it that afternoon, and turn it in two weeks later, because you never want them to know how fast you write. Mm -hmm. we, when I was in advertising, we had the agency I worked for was a very creative agency, and uh -huh. we didn't do anything in less than two weeks. We just yeah. didn't. The client oh. comes in, they want something, it'll be ready in two weeks. It didn't matter whether it was a three-ad campaign or a brochure or whatever. It was always at least two weeks. And even if you did it that afternoon and had it all wrapped up, you'd wait two weeks to give it to them. I wish that I had written advertising that way, but no, I would take the whole two weeks. Oh. It, I mean, that's just the kind of writer I am. I've never okay. been, you, never been fast. All right. When you're writing academic reports for the administrative council, it's going to be complete nonsense anyway, so you get it out of the way and just hold it until it looks like it must have been thoughtful. <laughs> Well, on that cherry note, we're well over our hour, Gary, and we should probably Wait, think about winding up and letting these people get though. on with their lives. <laughs> Hello? Well, this has Hello. been a lot Hello. of fun. Hello. Yeah. yeah, I know. It's, it's very, you know, <laughs> nice talking with you folks. It has been it has been a very great pleasure. Thank you all for taking the time out of your evenings to join us and to talk about us, Chris, Eileen, and Bill. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you, Gary and Jonathan. And we hope we'll have the chance to talk to you all again at some point. I know Eileen has spoken to you before, but hopefully at some point in the coming year or two, we will, we will take that chance. And Gary, we will return next week. With another Cood Street podcast. Should we mention that we're now on Tor.com? Yes, this one will go out to Tor.com uh, this coming week. So you'll see us, hear us there and wherever else the you know, good podcasts are streamed. Excellent. Until then, thank you all again, and we'll we'll talk to you again. Yeah. Bye bye. 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 bye.